Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me Stories from the Stage. I'm your host, Kunji Ikeda, and together we are entering into theater spaces to take a look at some Japanese Canadian artists across Canada, to hear some of their stories and gauge where we are as a community through these artistic points of view. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Matt Miwa to our stage to unfold some of his perspectives, experiences, and ideas together. So, if you're ready, I'll invite you in to the Nikkei Theater, located here between your ears, wherever you are in the world right now. Get comfortable, take a deep breath, and lights up. I'm Matt Miwa. My name is Matt Miwa, and these are my stories from the stage.、Uh, so, we are actually in a kabuki theater, which to me is, has one of the most beautiful stages、uh, in all of you know, kind of theater tradition worldwide.、Uh, so, there's an audience, of course,、uh, but right、uh, to the left. Ish side of the audience, there is a bridge which the characters enter、uh, into the theater and onto the stage on and also exit. So the audience is on both sides of that bridge,、uh, and you see the characters、uh, enter on stage and you know they walk right by you and then they、uh, and then exit as well. And、uh, before the play starts, at least the one. Uh, kabuki theater that I got to go to see in Japan. They have these beautiful, beautiful、uh, backdrops、uh, that are so ornate, and these immense kind of tapestries would be flown in, and then one would come down, and another one would come up, and you're just kind of in awe as you wait before for the play to start. And you don't even care that the play ever starts because it's just so beautiful what you see、uh, in front of you. But my one uh, kind of uh, Uh, alteration that I would make is that the stage would be like super, super high up. So the characters, the actors would enter on instead of, you know, two meter high platform, let's make it a 10 meter high platform、uh, that's very narrow. So it、uh, involves some acrobatic、uh, skill involved to <laughs> enter or exit the stage. So that's my stage. Wow. We're, we're, I mean, look, look way up and here we are.、Um. <laughs> That's beautiful. Ah,、uh, yeah. I don't know. It's、uh, it's one of my fantasy、uh, kind of visions, actually, for for theater. I've always wanted to do, to you know work with a, a kabuki stage like that and kind of just alter it that way. Wow. And and you've yet to to be able to use one so far. In performance,、uh, my performance art practice, I've I've done like a version of it where I've just taken、um, some two by fours. I've just kind of、uh, crossed over. The two by fours onto like a, like a makeshift stage.、Ah. And because I,、um, you know, I love、um, risk and balance, and I was a gymnast.、Uh, so、yeah. it reminds me of the balance beam, which, you know, as a male gymnast, I, was, I never trained on or competed on, but I always loved it. So I was so jealous that the girls got to do balance beam. Do male, <laughs> male gymnasts don't use this at all? No, no, no. No, gymnastics is very like separate. Like there's. Wow. Men's gymnastics and then women's、uh, gymnastics, and they have uh, separate um, events 
uh, and they never, never the twain shall meet. It's a very, very, <laughs> it's a very uh, gender role defined sport, as many sports are. Okay, okay. Well, well, let's keep going on this on this performance a little bit. Um, sure. So we've got the tapestries. We we've got entrance through the audience, and we and we've got like balance beam, narrow stage. Uh, bridge to the stage. Ah, okay. So okay. the stage is a safe place, okay. you know, it's like flat, expansive, you can <laughs> stand there comfortably, but the bridge that that's you, the characters uh, enter onto stage uh, from and then exit uh, on would be this, uh, you know, this harrowing kind of acrobatic skilled, uh, you know, Death, death-defying kind of feat. Wow. Okay. So, artistically, what would that mean to you? I think that it's just when it's the danger slash risk uh, aspect of it. The, the you know the virtuosity of doing this like a uh, tightrope act mm. to to perform whatever you're about to do. It kind of stops time uh, when you you know watch you know tight roping or a balance beam or any, you know any virtuosic athletic routine. Your body gets tense and you're like you clench your <laughs> your chest and you're like oh, is that going <laughs> to fall? And uh, you know the thrill and the danger is, is very enticing to some. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a you can really feel it reverberating in the audience when we're all breathing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, we're all if, uh, yeah. Insta tension, insta danger, insta fun. Okay, so so there's this inherent danger and risk when entering into the the playing space. Mm-hmm. Is that something you feel as a performer that that lives in in what you do artistically? Yeah, I think a lot of my performance. Uh, you no, know, I'll separate my. I do performance art, and then I do you know kind of straight theater. But a lot of my performance art, and even you know just my approach to theater. Uh, is inspired by the years and years I spent as a competitive gymnast. Mm. You know, that's why I first was introduced to performance and um, like uh, getting into the mindset of you have to you know, complete this task in front of this audience. And it's not, you know, acting and it's not uh, make-believe or anything. It's, it's very real and the, the physical risks are real. And so that was for years, that was how I, understood performance and mm. I always go back to that kind of dynamic whenever I I'm on stage mm. <laughs> so yeah I think it's it's just uh, uh, the idea of work and you know just physical accomplishments uh, is just kind of artistically intriguing to me because mm-hmm. always it always heightens uh, everyone's state that you know the performer and the, the audience alike just because of the, the 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 sense of risk and and the sense of potential failure and the potential rewards. Yeah, for sure. As you've divided this performance art and and theater work, mm-hmm. if your theater work is missing that sense sometimes uh, of the danger, the risk, that kind of held breath, what does there need to be for you to feel artistically fulfilled if it doesn't hold those physical risks? Actually, uh, the theater is uh, presented its own set of risks to me because I was such a uh, quiet and uh, I was not a very outgoing or I didn't speak a lot <laughs> as a as a kid. And I was, I'm always a bad storyteller, as you might be able to tell 
right now. You know, I can't, it's hard for them to string, <laughs> to string thoughts together um, for another person or for, you know, in a group setting or for friends. So theater uh, is very important to me because of the storytelling aspect and the um, emotional kind of revealing aspect of, of theater. So mm -hmm. characterization and, and uh, telling a story and revealing yourself that way is the, the best part of theater for me. And it's what I, you know, I, I quit gymnastics uh, in my, uh, in grade 12. And, you know, that was a, I did gymnastics every day after school for four hours a day and then four hours on Saturday. Wow. And then I just stopped uh, because I wanted to be in the school play, which was our town. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> which is a great play to be in when you're, uh, you know, for your first play, because it's just, it's a huge cast. Yeah, and you know, sure. it's like, oh, well, this is theater. You know, everyone back to the <laughs> having a good time. You know, my first play was Oliver, and oh yeah, okay. I was this Same tiny thing. kid. Yeah. I was the tiny kid, so I got cast as Oliver. <laughs> right away. Right away. Wow. Yeah, I threw in the deep end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I've heard I, uh, that's not the first time uh, speaking with Japanese Canadian artists here th that I've heard that the natural impulse isn't to be in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. And did you feel your, your cultural background played into that, that sensitivity of, of not always wanting to speak up? No, I wouldn't say that because the only uh, Japanese outlet or kind of identity I had as a kid was through my family, my extended family. Like mm. I never went to the, I grew up in Aurora, Ontario. Uh, so we were never connected to the Japanese Canadian Cultural Center. We didn't know any, I didn't know any Japanese people in Aurora, but for every holiday, like, you know, Mother's Day, Father's Day, uh, New Year's, Christmas, Thanksgiving, whatever, we always got together with my extended family. So my, my aunts and my uncles, my great grandparents and my grandparents, you know, all, you know, a whole bunch of second cousins and a few cousins. And that was the only place we were Japanese and that was a super loud place. Like, you know, and people were not, never held back there. Like my, the three <laughs> matriarchs who held that kind of unit together, my grandmother and my two great aunts, her sisters, like, like cackled like loudly always. And it was like, uh, you know, every, it was a very joyful, happy place. And, and you know, I, I was quiet because I was gay, I think, mm. but, uh, no, I was, ne I never got the impression that you had to, you know, Japanese people were very subdued or whatever, because <laughs> they were, everyone was so loud there. Our experiences may be diametrically opposed there. Uh, <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in small town. I mean, not small town. It was suburbia outside of Vancouver. Um, but in a similar way, I didn't have a ton of contact with the Japanese Canadian community, Mm -hmm. Except on special occasions, we'd go to my aunt or uncle's, and but it was very demure. It was very like it wasn't loud. It was like that was the, the tone of the of your of the dynamic. Yeah, I mean, across the board, most people were pretty uh, reserved, and and I don't know if icy is the right word because there was like a desire to be together. But I mean, no one cackled. I can tell you that much. <laughs> you as a kid got rambunctious. Were you told stop or and stuff like that? Or if you, I, I mean, I was a pretty active kid. But when you're put into that container, 
there's, yeah. there's no desire to to explode so i mean that's i was told yeah. to be on my best behavior and i felt that there was no place to really um be too rambunctious in that space it's interesting that's fascinating yeah it is you know you know <laughs> there's lots of us and there's lots of you know, ah, it's true it's true you know we're, we're as different as any ever anyone else is different family to family yeah that's true <laughs> You spoke about being being quiet, likely because of being gay. Mm-hmm. How was that exploration at, uh, through your family? There was none. Uh, I was not out to them, or I was not. You know, this was in the '90s, and mm-hmm. I won't say that it was. Be- I was quiet because of my family. It was mostly the school environment that I knew that you know being gay was wrong uh, mm-hmm. in that context, and. Uh, I just kind of carried that dynamic over into my family dynamic. You know, no one, no one was like, like no one in my family was like, oh, queer people, wonderful. Uh, <laughs> but that was normal for you know, and it's still normal now, I'm sure for for lots of people. But I, I don't, I don't want to say that uh, my Japanese family or even my my other side of my family were responsible in in repressing me in terms mm-hmm. of my. my queer identity or, or my gay identity hmm. you know that was just the time and I was you know any teen I'm sure if I was not queer I would have been a weird teenager as well I you know <laughs> you know lots of people go through awkward phases and I'm you know I was <laughs> right in there you know just not talking in the corner That's yeah for sure. I dealt with things yeah did this affect at all I, I, I want to get into some some gender roles yeah, and recognizing in the Japanese culture, there there was quite a, a patriarchal sense in, in my own extended family. The, the idea of number one son mm-hmm. uh, really held quite a bit of value of of the firstborn son being looked to as a really important figure in the family. Yes, was that at play in your experience? Um, I would guess I was conscious of it because I was older than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, of you know of the the kids um but no that never came into play but in terms of gender roles and uh you know family dynamics uh that really I, I really did have a strong sense of i had it ordered in my mind a specific way that i still keep uh, it still affects me to this day in that my grandmother and her sisters were the matriarchs uh, of my family and that was very influential to me that these three women held this family together in my generation before it was, you know, my, my Bachan and Jichan. Can you, can you speak about, especially as you were growing into an artist, were there some of these habits and some of these things you aspired to that you saw in these strong Japanese women that filtered into your, your artistic practice? Uh, it's more uh, their communication style, I think. And, uh, you know, my creative partner for Tashmi, uh, Julie Tomiko Manning, who you mm. did already, um, in, in my family and even in larger, you know, uh, cultural contexts growing up in the suburbs in, in the 90s, men really just sucked at communicating. Uh, not even not to like not to impart life lessons or you know just like just like talking and sh- like the stories that the kinds of stories they would tell and we're we're in my mind and i'm i guess i'm being very general and generalizing um but i was f- 
far more uh, intrigued by a woman's perspective or a woman's um, storytelling style, humor. You know, always a woman could make me laugh far more easily than a man could. And I would, I would find myself having to uh, probably fake laugh more at a man's story. But maybe that's an, uh, a discomfort that I had about, I don't know, my, my, my queer identity or anything. But women I, uh, have always put the world at ease for me. And not that it's their role to, but I just find that the, their energy, that's what it has been for me. Now I'm going to be on my guard now. No, 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 no. So that, no, of course, that's changing. That was, that was because, yeah. you know, I was an insecure teenager, insecure kid, and they were a sense of, that's where I found safety. Mm. And as I grow out of those insecurities, <laughs> then, uh, you know, my, you know, my, my, I'm op- more open to, uh, you know, uh, I don't see gender anymore. No, I'm, that's, that's very <laughs> facetious, but uh, that's entirely incorrect. Yeah, um, well, you're so woke, Matt. We <laughs> appreciate that's that. That's great, eh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You spoke a moment ago about Julie Tomiko Manning and the Tashmi Project, mm-hmm. and and we've we've both spoken earlier uh, about how our engagement with an artistic project uh, really brought us back to a different, renewed sense of Japanese Canadian identity. Mm-hmm. And and what was that like for you uh, of um, reconnecting in this new way through art? For Tashmi or from Tashmi, art is the was a form of activism, and not even that. It was just a form of of social and cultural growth and uh, acceptance for me. Like I really feel through creating Tashmi and doing the interview process with Nisei from across the country, really connected me to my Japanese identity in a way that I was too afraid to before. You know, Japanese. Was always uh, has always been a secret identity for me. I don't know how you feel, but you know I'm half Japanese, and so uh, no one ever identifies me as Japanese. And um, I can pass for I don't know what, but no one thinks I'm. Oh hey, oh you're you must be Japanese. So I don't have to deal with that on any level unless I bring it up in you know the wider world. For sure. I had a similar experience of, of being half Japanese, but uh, that I always felt that I was, I was quite white passing. Mm-hmm. Um, and until quite recently that I, I've vocalized that, th- that other people are like, uh, some, sometimes, and other people are like, oh, you're, you're more white feeling than white passing. And, and I, white feeling, eh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's absolutely something I I recognized and leaned into is that I felt the more white I could be, mm-hmm. um, the more the more success I'd have artistically in terms of like uh, getting auditions or getting cast roles I would p- portray. I try and be white, mm-hmm. um, and even socially, I feel like I was rewarded when. I could put the room at ease when a racial idea came up. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And and so that's a hard um, kind of mantle, eh? Like that... I read in hindsight, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for me, 
like um, behaving, you know, whitely or whatever was safer for me because I didn't know how to be Japanese or I don't, I didn't know, but because I think growing up that identity was also missing. Like I didn't, I had no expectations put on me from my family uh, that I had to continue um, a tradition or a culture uh, of with pride for generations to come. And I think that, you know, you weren't conscious of that at the time, but uh, that's caused me a lot of suffering uh, in my twenties where, you know, when my great grandparents started to, to pass away and my grandmother's to pass away, it's like, we're losing something here. And I'd, I don't know how to be, I don't, I don't feel complete as a Japanese person or a Japanese uh, having a Japanese identity. I don't feel, I know how to do that, not to ramble. Uh, no, I love that. I, I really <laughs> like that idea of, of the openness and the care that mm-hmm. they didn't ask us to be Japanese. And, and I felt that myself. I never felt prescribed to act in, act in a certain way. Uh, but then at the same time, because of that, I, I don't know how to be Japanese. Yes, and that for me that made me sad, or that that does make me sad because the touchstones are the older generation. They know how to do it, <laughs> you know. They know how to be <laughs> Japanese, and when they're not around, and slash when they will not be around, well, we'll be at a loss, you know. Like, yeah, we'll because we won't we won't have them. We won't have those Japanese homes to feel that Japaneseness in. These traditions were left were kind of they said, okay, well, this is this is for your grandma's house. And this is, you know, this is where this will happen. And now that, you know, those homes are, are, are kind of disappearing. We're at a super loss to keep those traditions or just that feeling alive. And my big horror um, is that when I'm, when I'm 60 or 70, uh, uh, I will have known a world that is, that was so rich and so vital to uh, my sense of, security as a youth and and identity uh I, I won't know how to recreate it and so uh that's what motivates me to do my work with you know the ottawa japanese community association and just to love <laughs> japanese people that you know you randomly meet rarely in the world <laughs> <laughs> sure i I'm, I'm it makes me think about a lot of the Japanese people in my life and my in my family, that it's not like they're ashamed, but it's not something to bring out. So I want, I guess my question to you is, what does Japanese Canadian pride look like? Oh, that well, that's a hard question. I think that's what <laughs> it's it's different. I'm sure it's different for every generation, mm-hmm. and um, I know that my grandpa has it for himself and for his generation in his memories and what they accomplished uh, uh, in his youth and during, you know, through it, uh, before the war in Vancouver, through internment, and it kind of ends there. You know what I mean? Because my, my grandpa is so um, happy and proud when he, when he talks about uh, Tashmi mm-hmm. because of the, he says, you know, like, uh, you know, all the organizations and the activities that they were, that they managed to put together um, and the, the lifelong friends they made there. And then uh, he's also uh, 
he brings up Asahi all the time because he's, yeah, he's, he's the baseball a, club. Big, yeah, he's a big baseball player. And um, so that was for him, you know, he has all these references and these memories. And then, and then for my dad, I have to ask him, but until recently, he didn't like to identify as Japanese Canadian. Canadian. He liked to identify as Canadian. Mm. And he, like, you know, and in the play, because uh, we interviewed my, a bunch of my cousins uh, who are older than me. Um, you know, my cousin, she says she thinks of herself as white. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, so there's those two competing relationships to Japanese Canadian identities and in the Nisei and the Sansei uh, that we have to contend with because I didn't grow up with a lot of you know racism against <laughs> Japanese people that, that you know that I dealt with on a daily basis. My older cousins say they do. They say they were chased home from school and they were called you know. Wow but that never happened to me. So mm-hmm. I'm happy and easily have Japanese Canadian pride because, you know, I, I love, I associate that with the memories of my childhood and no problems with racism, but to unite all the generations under one banner of Japanese Canadian pride, very difficult, I think. Mm. And might not, might not be possible as a nationwide community um, especially for, you know, my nephew is, who's five years old. He's a quarter Japanese and he's blonde haired and brown eyed, whatever. I don't think he's going to care. There's no, there's nothing Japanese in his life. And he lives in the whitest suburb possible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, my, my nieces and nephew are up in Northern Saskatchewan. And, and similar quarter Japanese. And um, the only way they've, they've really connected with it is that the, that's a neat part about their heritage that, that kind of sets them apart from other kids. Yeah. And, and that's about it. I mean, so far. And it's not, you know, if they don't have to, if they don't want to, like they're allowed to live their lives the way they want to. For sure. But the thing is for me, and I, I remember my, my great grandparents and I can, I remember what their energy was like, and I remember what their, I just, that's so powerful to me to, to have known them into, into my 20s, you know? Mm-hmm. Tashmi Project is, is a beautiful way to kind of honor some of those stories and ideas and, and to be able to pass those on. What are other ways you've been able to, to allow those memories to resonate in your life? Um, by, uh, well, Tashmi Project actually uh, connected me with, the Ottawa Japanese community, which I'd lived in Ottawa since 2000. No, I had no contact whatsoever with them. <laughs> that started our relationship and I joined the board and it's a really fantastic community. And uh, just recently I've joined um, Minyokai, which is uh, an Odori group. So I'm dancing, uh, Odori dancing. It's oh, nice. very, very difficult <laughs> for me. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, the moves are, you know, they're so simple, but like they come so quickly and I love it. <laughs> That's lovely. I mean, a bit, like you said, the movements are quite simple, a bit, a bit different than your gymnastic presentation. Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, the, the pressure's still on and uh... <laughs> oh, no, yeah, <laughs> the danger is still there. <laughs> yeah. For me, uh, I, I just love Japanese people for whatever reason. And working just having board meetings with you know all just a whole bunch of japanese canadians who 
get we all get uh, our humor and um I just love being with them and mm. I just have to follow that instinct I guess to, to keep my this work going of being a, an activist for the for the Japanese Canadian community now you spoke you spoke a little earlier about about how difficult it's going to be to to connect a, a bit of a national identity yes <laughs> could I talk about that I mean yes but uh, absolutely are there any I always like to ask are there any low-hanging fruit that we're not doing right now are there any things that's you know uh, not to overhaul the whole system, but is there something small that could be done right now to connect in in a more a more national sense? I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. <laughs> and you know, like uh, Yonsei uh, people in my community happily Zoom across the country. Um, I don't. Uh, I wasn't there during redress, right? So, like I, you know, I was whatever. I was there. I was like, you know, nine years old or four, but yeah. that was a huge achievement, a huge national achievements with a lot of networks and coalitions were built. And I know nothing about it except for what I read and what people tell me. And then I think after that, that, that was a lot of energy spent. And I, mm-hmm. and even though it resulted in Jap, uh, Japanese Canadian cultural centers being built uh, across the country I think uh, people just settled into their own communities and, you know, what, uh, even though, you know, there's the NAJC, but what is our national, like, why do we, what, what would our national agenda be? You know, everyone is, everyone is fighting right now uh, to engage young people, uh, young Japanese Canadians in a sense of community. I think, you know, that's going to, succeed only in part and it's largely going to fail because of um loss of culture and what's what's the reason for us to come together uh we have to it, something has to call us together unless you have do you have a, a big national mandate to create this to create a, a community across our country like i'm sorry. doing the podcast i'm sorry I'm, i didn't mean to diminish no, our, no, these, no. But nothing, nothing is calling us to action. I think if something did, we would gladly. But um, I think everyone is just focused on aging communities, aging populations, and uh, fraying uh, networks hmm. right now. Um, I know, you know, in Ottawa, that's, that's what we're dealing with. A lot of people are uh, passing away, and we don't know how to... Uh, come together as a community even around that, you know, because younger people that we do manage to bring into the fold are not connected to the story in the older community. And there's, you know, there's stories that are missing that don't come together. So uh, I don't have any inspiring or um, useful or productive advice for that. I would, I would offer that something that seems a bit galvanizing is the idea of the Japanese Canadian identity within Black Lives Matter. Yes. You know, Japanese Canadian in, in quite recent history have gone from being this subhuman enemy alien class to in, in many ways becoming the model minority myth of becoming, whether it's successful financially or socially, 
um, a lot of the Japanese Canadian culture has, has now been seen and, and rendered as a safe place. Yeah, but I would argue against that. Um, you know, the model minority, sure, but you know, I, I'm, I'm not that generation, but the generations that had to deal with post, just post-war and, uh, and redress, they did a lot of assimilating and a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, I'm not that Japanese. I'm, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm white enough to, uh, you know, to deserve your, deserve my citizenship and my rights uh, and for you to hire me a job but I'm not going to impose my cultural, any cultural imperatives or values onto you or insist that they have a space, you know, aside from redress, which, but. Uh, I'll add that, um, I mean, the, the film, One Big Happa Family yeah. by Jeff Chiba Stearns, mm -hmm. uh, he speaks about the, the generation after the war that 95% Japanese Canadians did not stay within a Japanese Canadian community, mm -hmm. which is unprecedented numbers mm -hmm. that 95%, I mean, all of, you know, my, my, my dad and my aunt and my uncle all married white people. Oh yeah. Um, I, I don't know if it's similar in your family. Oh yeah, no, of course, of course. Yeah. It's the same. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so it's, it's this wild trajectory that it feels like the Japanese Canadians have gone on that we now are in, I mean, the place that we're at right now, where one of our biggest hurdles, as you say, is getting new people in and, and honoring what is. Uh, I, and I, I think we're also dealing with the legacy of, um, uh, you know, don't make waves, you know. Uh, we made enough waves with redress. And even though we are now in a privileged, we are a privileged situation where we actually did receive redress and compensation from the government. Uh, the human rights aspect of that campaign has not uh, continued in terms of its um, you know, recruitment campaigns or, or the, the rigor of keeping those values alive for other communities. You know what I mean? We're like, yes, there are very strong individuals and there are, and groups out there who are fighting for human rights, but as a community and as a whole, Japanese Canadians are not out there saying, uh, fighting racism, you know what I mean? Mm. And we're not strong advocates as a as a block or as a community for for Black Lives Matter. And why do you think that is? Because of you know, uh, don't make waves. Mm. Assimilation was an acceptable part of Japanese Canadian culture, and I'm sure that that attitude uh, that as a culture, and again, I'm just generalizing. Is is still prevalent? I'm sure, in the back of lots of people's minds, is the attitude: "Well, just assimilate. You know, it worked for us, so it should work for you. So it should work for you." <laughs> uh, I, is that a horrible thing to say? Probably, but I believe it's partly true. Mm -hmm. Okay, what, what's something we can do as artists to counteract that, or or to to make it more aware? I think that we. We're, uh, we have to always extend a hand to, you know, anyone in need and uh, other ethnic cultural groups, continue networking and, and branching out. But aside from that, which is the obvious thing to do and, you know, the necessary thing to do, uh, we have to heal within ourselves. There's still a, a huge fracture in the Japanese Canadian community. The Nisei are, are about to pass away, all of them in the next 10 years, 
And there's so much that we don't know about them. Like it's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be very shocking. I think for uh, people from our generation, when we are, when we are left in charge, well, we're going to be shocked. I think by the strength that we always knew that they had the Nisei and of course the Issei before them that, but that we never acknowledged or cherished or learned from uh, while we had the chance. Mm. Mind you, it must've been so hard for my dad's generation for Sanseis to, to grow up uh, trying to assimilate and with their parents telling them to assimilate and the anger and the rage like that my dad had <laughs> and that I grew up witnessing from that, you know, not wanting to be Japanese or whatever. Mm. It's just like, uh, we have to, as artists, we have to embrace and love our elders, I guess. And show, and show, and it's so, oh, it's so corny, you know, like <laughs> it's corny, but we just have to figure out a way to love being Japanese Canadian for ourselves and in our families and then in larger communities. And then, show and figure out how to show that uh to to the outside community which is one thing that i'm trying to do locally is uh to show japanese canadian pride is a project called tomoni which means go together in japanese mm. and so uh, we had our first uh, uh event last year it was a big success more people came out than i thought they would because we pair local uh japanese uh Canadian artists and then Japanese uh, cultural traditions like taiko and uh, odori and uh, we have a Japanese women's choir here and we pair each of these groups with non-Japanese artists, local professional artists, and they collaborate and they do whatever they want. But they have to come up with a, a piece together. What to Tomoni hopes to do is kind of reinvigorate everyone's sense of what Japanese cultural practice is by evolving it, working with, mm -hmm. uh, branching out and, and working with the artistic scene that normally does not get exposed to uh, what these Japanese artists are doing. But these are living, breathing artists and they, they work really hard and they're super open to, to evolving and to collaborating and to creating something new. Now that's your beautiful answer to, to what's one thing we can do to... to... <laughs> Red community. I mean, we can take a book out of what you're doing um, in terms of cross pollinization. Yeah, yeah, it's it's and it brings together new audiences, and uh, you know, it's just starting out, uh, but there's a lot of energy for it. I'm so I'm super pleased about it, and and I hope it becomes a, a you know like a, a staple, mm -hmm. uh, like a Powell right. Street festival for for Ottawa. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I like, I think how we all like think to the Powell Street Festival. Oh, it's, it's so fantastic. <laughs> it is, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I wish I had one growing up. Yeah. Yeah. Can you speak now to kind of start to tie these ideas together? Would you say Tashmi really sped the process of your own healing? Oh, yes, that's for sure. Uh, specifically, you know, when Julie and I started, I was... Uh, I didn't know how to speak to the niece. I didn't know what to say. And, and thank God that she was there. She, Julie is a very dynamic and brave person. And she led the conversations. I feel so comfortable now with any Nisei person I meet. I just, I want to connect with them and I have tricks to connect with them and to get them talking about their past and 
how to show my respect for, for them. And I love being able to do that. And I now have a great relationship with my grandpa, uh, who I didn't know how to talk to him. And this has given us um, a context for relating. And now we talk all the time and he still comes, he still tells me more and more stories of his youth. And Mm. so that whole landscape of BC pre-war is very kind of filled in for me and it's great. And before it was just, you know, dark shadow. (laughs) Very cool. I feel like this could be a bit of a a spinoff podcast is how to talk to Nisei with Matt Miwa. (laughs) (laughs) So, so to put you on the spot, what are two or three tips that you could give me if I were to talk to a Nisei? First, you have to know that they're more eager than you think to just to revisit the past. Mm. And even though they have never brought, they might have never brought it up before, or if you tried to bring it up with them and they say, I was too young, I don't remember much of what happened during that time, just start with easy factual questions like, what street did you grow up on? Where did your parents work? Um, you know, what's, what, was, what school did you go to? What did you eat? Mm. You know, uh, what, what things grew in the garden? Like, did your parents have a garden? Where did you get rice <laughs> from? And, uh, and then those things will, will open up for the most part. You know, not everyone is different. They're easily triggered into, into um, their less traumatic memories. Uh, and they'll revisit them, them happily with you. Mm. and so uh, you know just keep asking for just the just small details and yeah. no large no large themes or say what was internment like or what was <laughs> <laughs> just ask who who was their neighbor in internment or what time did you go for a bath or what was their cmp officer's name um because it's so surprising my grandpa he always has just you know good things to say about the rcmp officers because a good relationship with with them cool very cool yeah all right so uh outside of um outside of of how to speak to nisei with matt miwa and uh your festival timoni Mm -hmm. and we touched base a little bit on your uh performance art practice performance art is is great uh because it's a theater that is not uh you don't have to tell a story and there's no characters <laughs> but you still, <laughs> it's the same for everything else you know there's still uh, for me there's still costumes usually it's in drag and uh singing um singing is a, a thing that i've discovered recently i'm in i've joined a the uh, Ottawa Gay Men's Chorus for the last mm. four, no, five years, I guess I was on that. And uh, performance is just basically, it's reclaiming um, theater, you know, the emotional intensity of theater without any rules. So it, I, I love that that freedom part of it um, because the, the basic rule for performance art for me is that you have to make it so that the audience can't take their eyes off of you. Very cool. Yeah, that's the that's the goal, and uh, I guess it's a form of entertainment for me. But really, it's a, it's an emotional intensity that you don't have to worry about achieving a, a story or a conclusion. So you go with your your gut. It's really about mm-hmm. listening to your instincts and opening up as much as you can. Wow. Or not. 
I, I hear you speak about emotionally emotional intensity and, and opening up that way. Uh, I've I've read that you spoke earlier about this practice as as finding spiritual wholeness. That's what everything I do is is a a piece of that. And I think finding spiritual wholeness is just a fancy way of overcoming anxiety. You know what I mean? Wow. <laughs> I think you know. Uh, our world is, you know, is overcome with people who have anxiety. I, I think it's because people are just, uh, they've been, they don't have the right, the correct outlet and the right guidance and the right permission structures to do what they need to do, you know, and that was certainly my case growing up. Uh, the way to compassion, I think in this world is to, is through, is partly through self-satisfaction <laughs> you know you have to you have to be who you need to be and you have to do what you need to do and you're not going to be a compassionate person if you can't do that mm-hmm. so uh so performance art is a complete <laughs> is very self-centered and it's uh very uh self the goal is self-satisfaction for me because it's you do what you need to do in the moment to make yourself feel as good as you can mm. and uh what would you now, Matt Miwa, say to the young actor who, who was struggling to get it right? What kind of words of advice would, would that young version of you appreciate hearing? Oh, just to embrace uh, humiliation, which I think is a necessary step. <laughs> and, and which happens to me all the time still. And, um, and I think this, like, this is a lot to do with you know, masculinity in general. I think, I think people need to be humiliated in a way that's just safer. Like, let them feel humiliation, but how? But lessen the consequences for that for them. Healthy humiliation. Healthy humiliation. Yes, very good for everyone. And then you mm-hmm. you 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 just want less. You want to prove yourself less. You want to you want to talk less. That's very. <laughs> I know I've been talking a lot this whole. I guess, but I guess hey, it's your I, episode. Yeah. <laughs> but in general, you know, like I don't, I don't need to share my perspectives or viewpoints. It's not really important or that interesting, you know, <laughs> I really appreciate it. So thank you. Yeah, no, but you know, you know, like it's not like it, you have to choose your moments where it's the most helpful. Mm. Otherwise people don't need your opinion because it's often comes at the wrong moment where it's, not effective or it doesn't pierce correctly mm. don't talk as much that's that's the most Jap- and that's that's very japanese right so yeah, that is yeah yeah for sure and, and i think that's a that you know you know not not in every context but it's a very helpful strategy mm-hmm, for sure. don't talk okay. so much <laughs> okay so if that's for the the young artist uh can we go back a little further to uh the the boy with the three matriarchs what would be one piece of advice that 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 young version of you would appreciate hearing that one day you will get to to uh act act like a matriarch and you will be one because <laughs> i'm more interested in that than being a patriarch and i think if uh yeah if i knew that being younger i would have relaxed more Wow, that's awesome. Uh, Really cool uh, insight at you at that age. Uh, I think that's that's all the questions I had for you. 
Thanks, man. Thanks for the conversation. And uh, hopefully the country isn't so big that we don't see each other before too long. Yes. <laughs> and thanks for doing this podcast, really. Um, I, it's, I think it's going to be very helpful for just for just for people that feel Japanese, but that part could die, you know, at any moment. Wow. And easily. Yeah. So, uh, so thanks. Depressing, eh? <laughs> well, it, it gives it a sense of immediacy. Yes. <laughs> it gives me a sense of, of purpose when I'm sitting alone editing uh, the, these podcasts. <laughs> So a big thank you to Matt Miwa for all the ideas and stories shared from the stage. For more information on Matt, you can check out thetashmiproject.com or the Ottawa Japanese Community Association at ojca.ca. Once again, my name is Kunji Ikeda and thank you for joining us for some stories from the stage. A big thank you to my presenting partners, the Nikkei National Museum and Cultural Center. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to give a share or send to a friend who may enjoy. Let's keep sharing ideas, thoughts, and care for one another. <laughs>